Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Sunday, August 20th. This qualifies as a rare emergency edition of the mini break podcast as it was just one of those championship Sundays in Cincinnati, the sort of day where the entire tennis world is on the edge of their seats. And how could you not be given all the drama we saw in Novak Djokovic's three set victory over Carlos Alcaraz in today's Cincinnati final? Of course, if that match wasn't enough, we had one of our biggest WTA results of the year as 19-year-old, let me emphasize that again, 19-year-old Coco Goff wins her first 1,000-level singles title, beats Iga Swiatek for the first time in eight attempts. It was one of those weekends in the tennis world. Cincinnati was one of those events, and look, I realized our Crack Rackets team, we didn't offer you the quantity of updates I would have hoped for over the course of these past two North American 1000 level events. I promise we're going to make up for it this week. David Kane joining me on the podcast tomorrow to break down everything that happened in Cincinnati. We're also going to get into our GSP previews of the 2023 U.S. Open. We will find a way to talk contenders, dark horses, Americans, preview the draws. I promise, despite serving as MC in Cleveland this week, I say despite, that is one of the great pleasures I have at any point of the year. I am thrilled to get to steer the ship or, again, MC center court in what is a loaded WTA 250 event, but I had to record this podcast. I wasn't able to watch the entirety of Alcaraz Djokovic. I still have to go back, watch really the first two sets. I saw the ending of set number two. I saw all of set number three, and I have to go back, watch the film more closely in in Coco Goff's victory today over Karolina Mukova. I had to offer you some thoughts. I had to just hop on the microphone because, again, this is one of those days that make me so happy to have this podcast, so happy to have our Crack Rackets and Mini Break podcast community to speak with because it was just one of those transcendent Sundays in the tennis world. And look, I do want to talk golf Muhava a little bit on today's show, but it's really going to be stream of conscience, uh, you know, again. I'm not going to break down all four of the match points I believe Carlos Alcaraz fought off. I'm not going to give the overwhelming tactical breakdown of this match. We'll save that for tomorrow with DK. But look, this is the rivalry we've been waiting for, for, dare I say, a full decade now. It's 20, no, certainly half a decade. The entirety of the existence of this podcast, but to see someone from the next generation in this case, maybe even the next Gen 2.0, someone with a decade-plus gap in age with members of the big three just step up and on the biggest stages time after time after time push, whether it was Federer back in 17, 18, obviously more prominently now Nadal and Djokovic, 
you know, those are the two guys you just wanted to see pushed by the next generation because obviously the big, and by the way, shout out to Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. It's why I'm able to have this podcast to offer my stream of consciousness thoughts on a match like this. But, you know, again, just to get into the history, let's get right into it today. You go back to 2017, or even if you want to go before that, when the next-gen campaign was first launched, and guys like Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, they were all putting up significant results in 250s. They were all putting up significant results at the 500s. There would even be one or two of them sneaking into 1,000-level finals, maybe even grabbing a title there, getting into deep into second weeks at slams, but... As fun as some of those matches were, you think about Nadal-Medvedev, where, of course, Nadal beats Medvedev in three sets in that 2019 U.S. Open final. You think about some of the battles Medvedev-Djokovic had, maybe not necessarily in slam finals, but the battles they had in fourth rounds or quarters, semis over the year. You think about Dominic Team, the way he was able to push Djokovic at Roland Garros. I think they even played a five-setter, right, when they faced off in the Australian Open final You know, you saw those guys at moments, you know, year-end championships, if you want to throw those in. You saw those guys at moments have success, and, you know, certainly we saw Zverev in 2020, I think, come closest to, I don't want to say earning the mantle of equaling the big three, but he beat Djokovic at the Olympics down a set, and he did it in a definite in in a fashion where he played the sort of tennis you have to play to be world number 1 someday and then of course Europe follows that up by beating Novak Djokovic at the US Open in the very next significant event and look Zverev has his own wealth of issues on the court and getting over mental humps but against those guys when he could position himself as the unequivocal underdog you even go back to the 2022 French Open semifinal with Rafa you can't say he was going to win that match he was trailing but he was certainly equaling Rafa's efforts there, I think he's come closest. I mean, again, Medvedev on hard court, sure, has had moments against both Rafa and Djokovic and the rest of the tour where he has gone on streaks that number one players in the world go on. But no one, you know, if you want to throw Tsitsipas in there because he's actually beaten those guys at slams, he got to a slam final as well, fine. But no one has played Novak equally the way we have just seen Alcaraz. And I know this is an instant reaction. And I know, again, they're still very young in their head-to-head matchups. But this is what it's supposed to look like, and this is how it's supposed to feel when the two best players in the world go head-to-head. And this is one of those instances where I think unequivocally, and you could say, well, if Rafa wasn't injured, he'd be second best in the world. Fine, but he is injured right now, and I don't accept that premise, but... If that's your argument, it doesn't matter because he's not in the ball game right now. And just for the second consecutive match, these two guys deliver. Obviously, they did the same in the Wimbledon final, playing five sets. That one going somehow the way of Alcaraz after Novak Djokovic hadn't lost a Wimbledon match in a half decade. Alcaraz conquers Djokovic on a surface where he's least experienced. And now, you know, again, despite all of his struggles, he comes into another final. He wins that first set against Djokovic and sneaks out that early break. Djokovic just cannot crack the code goes down a break early in the second set and finds himself trailing, again, the world number one who is at 21 years old, what, 15 years, uh, his 
younger or 16 years. Yeah, 16 years his younger. Good math, Alex. And then Novak came back. And then Novak locked in every ball into that backhand corner of Carlos Alcaraz. Novak abandoning the second serve and saying, look, I got to play aggressive. I got to I gotta swing out. I gotta be the, you know, again, I have to be the one dictating because if I am just letting you swing freely with that forehand, you know, I am not 25-year-old Novak anymore. But I can summon him, and I can be him physically. I can be him, you know, again, I have more mental stamina that than Djokovic once did at 25, and even dealing with the conditions, which again, that's what I have to go back and watch. I'll clarify that with DK tomorrow, you know, Djokovic struggling with those conditions in the first set. How did that impact his play? You know, from the commentary I have read from people I trust, it sounds like the first set wasn't necessarily the highest quality between the two uh, from a pure striking of the ball and winners to unforced air standpoint. But again, anytime you're gifted a 5 7 7 6 7 6 scoreline from the top two players in the world, a three hour, 49 minute master or 1000 level final. All is right in the world. We just, we finally have the rivalry we have been searching for because, again, Nedvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, all these guys in pockets. They had their moments. They were certainly challengers. They certainly had edges against their peers, although none of them ever really stood out above the other. I know Medvedev has had a lot of recent success against both Zverev and Tsitsipas, but you know Zverev just beat him in Cincinnati, and it's you know Medvedev steals it steals wins the Slam title at the 2020 U.S. Open, well deserved, but he only got one, and when he was at the very very peak. Not saying that he's not still at his peak, but. You know, again, when he was world number one, he got one slam. That's exceptional, but it's not unequivocally establishing yourself and separating yourself from the pack the way, you know, Alcaraz has in winning the U.S. Open last year, beating Djokovic now in a Wimbledon final for slam number two on a different surface. Of course, the surface he's had the most success on is clay, and I know he gets knocked out, uh, obviously, by Djokovic in the semifinals in disappointing fashion after what were those first two sets this year, but you feel like the Roland Garros storm is coming for Carlos Alcaraz. Obviously, you look at the numbers for Alcaraz, even with his loss today. He's now overall 66-10 and 10 in his last 52 weeks, 53-6. and 6. He's won 90%, 90% of his matches this year. He's played, what, total first rounds at events, excuse me, in terms of, you know, again, just looking at first matches overall. He's 12-0 in first matches at events this season. So he's played 12 total events. He's made eight total finals. He's won six total titles. And by the way, those titles include a Wimbledon title, an Indian Wells title, a Madrid Masters title. It's a Pantheon-level season. And he's having it at age, excuse me, I said 21, at age 20. That's where my math was faulty. I don't know why I said he was 21 earlier. I knew he was 20. He's doing this already. You know, again, he's a guy who's top 10 in both hold and break percentage. It's him and Djokovic. That's the list. That feels about right. And through all of that, you're down a set and a break to a guy who has finally emerged as the clear-cut heir apparent to the throne in men's tennis. After, again, a a six-year run where we didn't know who the heir apparent was. Sure, all the next-gen guys were jockeying for it, and we thought it might be a little rule by... uh, Is rule by fiat the right term here? I don't think so. But a little... You know, again, it might be a... 
an oligarchy. That's not the right word either. A couple of guys at the top, okay? My brain is broken. Our Crack Rackets team has been on the road. It's been like week five for me on the road. I'm ex- I'm ecstatic to do so. Again, Tennis in the Land is maybe my favorite event. We get to work all year, and I love the LS Pro Tennis Challenge. I loved my time in California. I know we haven't offered you guys the amount of podcasts, again, you deserve on Cincinnati. DK coming in tomorrow. We're going to make up for it this week. Have you all prepped for the U.S. Open? But to watch Novak come back, to watch Novak cough up match points, to watch Novak serve for the match and fail to serve it out, to watch Alcaraz smack his hand in disgust at times after seeing his lead evaporate and, you know, to need that same hand treated and, you know, to see the cramping at the end and yet the shot making, Alcaraz is trying to serve and volley, move forward. They're still willing to play these 50-ball rallies and Alcaraz is hitting slice forehand around the single sideline passing shots to fight off match points three and a half hours in. This is what makes this sport wonderful is, again, the individual ism of it all. I know they're getting coached now, but it's still just those two guys out on court, a battle of wills, a battle of physicality, a battle of creativity and intelligence. How? Because no two points look exactly the same for these two. They're too good improvisationally. They're too good at taking away what you want to do best. And through it all, again, a 36-year-old Novak Djokovic in three hours, 49 minutes, five seven seven six seven six, he takes the title in Cincinnati. And now he trails, what, just Federer and Connors in, I believe, both overall wins and overall titles. He's now 57-7 and seven in his last 52, 38-5 over his last, uh, over the season. He's, you know, currently 2% better via hold percentage in terms of how frequently he's holding serve, 2% better than his career average, you know, the first serve is just a weapon now, and the way he was going after his second serve, and then he throws in the shakiest of double faults and flops in overhead, and yet still again finds a way to battle through despite battling the heat earlier. And I know I'm not giving you tactics. I'm giving you platitudes. I'm well aware. It wasn't, although I do think in particular in the third set, Novak Djokovic's determination to start every ball through that ad side of the Alcaraz court if Carlos was willing to sacrifice, and he was willing to move around that shot, try to hit inside out or inside in forehands, but again, how effective Djokovic is in that on-the-run forehand cross, just able to pinpoint that ball into the opposite deuce side corner. All of those things added up physically for Alcaraz over time in the third, and it just felt like Djokovic was the steadier of the two. As much as he amped up his aggression You know, again, as physical as Carlos Alcaraz is, he can kind of sometimes be one speed. His solution, and it's a solution that works for him because he is uniquely skilled and uniquely athletic, is to hit through everything. Is to, you know, again, just through sheer will and sheer brute force, outdo his opponent. And he almost did today. But Novak managed to battle through. And again, I'm going to go back. I'm going to watch the highlights where there are specific spots Novak was serving to. I did think, yeah, you know, you think about the kick serves. You think about uh, the 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 T serve on the deuce side. But I thought he played a lot of body serves for Carlos Alcaraz. Just, again, take away the obvious lines of attack for Alcaraz on that return of serve. Maybe not compromise the depth for Carlos Alcaraz quite as well. But, again, 
don't give Carlos Alcaraz an easy choice to begin with. Get Carlos Alcaraz thinking from the start. Then that first ball, again, with depth into the backhand wing, unless it's a sitter. And then credit to Djokovic, he was not afraid to go after Carlos Alcaraz's forehand. And I do think, again, because Alcaraz's solution is at times to just swing through everything, if you can pressure that forehand with pace, errors will come. And there were certainly errors for Alcaraz as Djokovic worked his way back in set number two. But again, set number three was just a battle of wills. Set number three was absolutely delightful. Carlos Alcaraz had no business getting that third set to a breaker. He ultimately does. And you know, it's still Novak Djokovic. <sighs> I mean, three hours, 49 minutes. He's through. He wins another Cincinnati title. On the long list of accolades, you name them, they all exist for Novak Djokovic. And, you know, again, I mentioned the big things. He now trails just Federer and, uh, excuse me, just Federer and Jimmy Connors in terms of total victories on the ATP, WTA, uh, total victors on the ATP Tour. He's second behind just Federer and Connors in terms of total titles on the ATP Tour. And it's the ninth ATP title he's won after saving match points during the tournament. Fourth time he's done it in a final. Did it in Shanghai 2012, Wimbledon 2019, and yes, did it in Adelaide against Sebastian Corda earlier this season. Look, I got no negatives on Carlos Alcaraz. Did you watch that match? What You're going to criticize a Carlos Alcaraz who... You look for him now. He has played, I believe, what, three plus eight? Excuse me, two plus eight. He's played seven straight three-set matches, the last of which is a three-hour, 49-minute thriller against, in my opinion, the greatest men's tennis player we've ever seen. You know, again, had no business beating Hubie Hercots. Honestly, probably either time he's played him the past two weeks, gets through those, flips the script on Tommy. It's just, again, the competitive spirit the sheer force of will. I've been describing this with friends. He's like a superhero. It's just anything you'd think a superhero would do in a scripted play. That's what Carlos Alcaraz is able to do when the moment calls for it. Did you see the passing shot, the forehand slice, banana hook passing shot by Djokovic to fight off match point in the third? I mean, who does that? Carlos Alcaraz does that. And maybe I spent too much time praising him, not enough time praising Djokovic, who, by the way, cruised to the title this week, he dropped, what, one set to Alcaraz? I guess he also had a save the match point, but 6-5 and five over an inform Zverev, 0-4 over an inform Fritz, obviously 18th consecutive win over Monfi, or 19th, whatever it was, beats Davidovich Fokina as well. Gets exactly the warm-up, and not that there was ever doubt in Novak's head, but now he goes back into New York with just that little reminder in the back of everyone's brain of, well, did you see Novak in Cincinnati? That's what I have to overcome to win this title. And by the way, Carlos ain't far behind. The clear-cut 1B heading into New York. And it is 1A, 1B, and I'm sorry, Yannick Sinner, Daniil Medvedev, any other guy you thought you might have a claim to that title contending Tier 1 going into the Open. There's only two guys. It's Djokovic. It's Alcaraz. That's what this Cincinnati final tells us. And boy, do you hope they play in New York. I mean, what a gift that would be. Back-to-back slam finals between those two. Again, a 36-year-old Djokovic finally finds his next-gen foe. Is this the sort of thing that 
I don't want to say rejuvenates, but allows Djokovic, who was always going to be able to extend his career because he is a freak. You know, the, the anecdotes going around about how he afforded himself one square of chocolate as his reward for winning the 2012 Australian Open. That's the intensity it takes to be world number one. All the things. Djokovic does them. But now he's got a rival to sink his teeth into as well. Now he's got that challenger that, you know, now you're not just racing history, which is always a tough thing to do, right? When when your biggest enemy is yourself and self-motivation becomes the key. I'm not saying that's not what Novak Djokovic has thrived in his entire life, but life is always easier when there's someone in the race with you. And Carlos Alcaraz, despite losing this match, proved he is in the race with Novak Djokovic. And I think 20 minutes stream of conscience on this match is enough. Again, we'll clean things up as we get with David Kane tomorrow. I'll talk more about the semis, quarters, everything else we learned in Cincinnati. But what did we learn? We have our headline. We have our ATP matchup to watch. And, you know, you have that. And now going into New York, you have Americans sweeping the North American 1,000-level stretch with Jessica Pagula winning last week in Toronto or Montreal, I believe, excuse me. And now Coco Goff wins DC quarters and loses loses her match to Pagula in Canada, but makes the quarterfinals there, losing to the eventual champion. Again, that's no knock on her. Then beats Iga and follows through with a victory over Muhova in straight sets in the final uh, to win the Cincinnati title. So now she's won, what, 11 of her last 12 going into New York with this run. She's obviously going to make a jump up the rankings. She's up to number six in the live rankings with this title, but maybe more importantly now has kind of separated herself in the race to the year-end finals, 444-point gap between her and Marketa Vondrosova in sixth. There's also, perhaps most importantly, an over 1,000-point gap between her and ninth-place Petra Kvitova, 19 years old, and she's positioned herself to make a second straight to her finals. She's already made a slam final. Now she's won a 1,000-level title. Oh, by the way, she's one of the top five doubles players in the world, has been for 18 months. The intensity, the poise, the post-match interviews, the clear-cut improvements. Not, you know, again, has she changed her forehand technique in the way so many have clamored for for so long? No. Has she doubled down on that, though? No. I think she has gotten more aggressive. I've been saying this since January of this year on this podcast. I know it's annoying when people say, oh, I've been saying this for years, but... If you've watched Coco Goff this season, not just analytically, where of course she's top 15 in both hold and break percentage for the first time in her career, but just eye test. If you don't have a weapon to hurt her, she's moving in. She's being the aggressor. She's on top of the baseline. She's leveraging her speed, her hands, her craft to just beat you to the spot. And I think there were times today when Carolina Muhova looked out across the net and was like, this is a better version of me. Like, the forehand's a little funky, the grip's a little weird, there are some moving pieces, but so, again, so twitchy, so comfortable volleying at the net, comfortable playing the overhead out of the air, the depth on the backhand, the ability to take that ball early on the rise, change direction. I mean, I thought she beat Iga backhand to backhand in the semis, and... Again, we'll talk more about that with David Kane tomorrow because that's a match I want to have him on specifically to break down and discuss the implications of it. Not from an Ega side. I can address that now. First of all, I love you, Ega Nation. 
Ega Nation, you know I love you, right? You know I do. I don't think anyone serious is is hitting the panic button at all on Ega after she lost this match. And if there's someone serious, not a random Twitter troll with 100 or fewer followers or some guy who says some rude comment that for some reason popped on your timeline, because of course those humans exist. There's the best of us, but very often it's the worst of us that emerge on social media. Not those people. I don't think there's a serious person hitting the panic button for Ega after this Cincinnati run. And by the way, Ika did her job. Like, she got the warm-up matches in, in Canada, in Cincinnati. Eight total losses to the two eventual champions, Pagula, Goff, each in three sets. Ika's just fine heading into New York. I ain't got no worries about Ika Sviantek. Now, I am fascinated to say, to hear what everyone's top five contenders will be because Ega. Sabalenka, Rabakina, Pagula, Goff sounds pretty simple. What are the gaps right now, though, between all of those players? The biggest thing is not that Iga Sviantek has fallen. It's that Coco Goff has risen. And again, I, I, I said this stat earlier in the week. I tweeted this out. Career highs in hold percentage, break percentage, win percentage. Obviously has won the biggest titles of her career consecutively now in D.C. and Cincinnati. She's 38-13. and 13. It's a 75% win percentage against. She's 19 freaking years old. She's 21-1 against opponents ranked outside the top 50. 29-7 against opponents ranked outside the top 20. But, you know, now she's 9-6 and six against top 20 opponents. 4-4 four and four against the top 10 as well. Now, three of those four top 10 victories have come over her last three events, D.C., Montreal, Cincinnati. But guess what? Those are the events you play heading into the U.S. Open. And there's no doubt, you know, so many, it's so easy to say she made the coaching switch. Brad Gilbert's in the box. Let's give him some credit. I am sure he has given her the goods. But all the credits to Coco Goff, who just every year comes back with a little something new. Last year, it was the not that she's ever been a bad volleyer, but the willingness to volley. This year, it's using her speed to impose herself at the net and just, again, looking for every early opportunity to take that ball early on the rise and get in behind it. Coco's a beast. She's awesome. And again, I know these are limited thoughts on Coco. I don't have much for you on Muhova right now other than to say when she's healthy, she's unequivocally a top 20 player in the world, obviously has been even better than that here this season, has, again, the total package. Athletic, can move, can do all sorts of fascinating things, but, man, Coco freaking golf. I mean, if you're an American now, you got to tend to her. Like, it, it's just sold out on our thrash, right, whenever she plays, and... Again, for her and Pagula, the two biggest titles of the summer have been won by Americans. Neither is named Serena Williams. You've got these two. Obviously, Madison Keys has been a primetime performer this year. She's had one of her best seasons of her career. And, you know, again, with players like Stearns and Navarro and Lauren Davis has had a decent season. Sloan played pretty darn solid in Cincinnati as well. Obviously, Danielle Collins starting to pick things up. Alicia Parks, Taylor Townsend win the doubles title in Cincinnati. That's two more fantastic players to enjoy and follow if you're an American tennis fan on the grounds. It's a, it's going to be a fun U.S. Open. I, I mean, again, there are just so many different storylines. And now there's a headline race to follow as well. Because, look, I, I it's not Iga versus Sabalenka on the WTA side anymore. It's a wealth of options, a wealth of players. And 
I still think Iga and Sabalenka are the clear-cut leaders in the field, but I'm saying enough other players have played well enough throughout the course of this season, put up enough big results that there's a lot of question marks. There's a lot of unknowns in the best possible way heading into the U.S. Open on the women's side. On the men's side, Sinner's been good. Medvedev's been good. Zverev is emerging. Tsitsipas did win Los Cabos for what it's worth. But Djokovic is in top form, and he has a challenger to push him in 20-year-old Carlos Alcaraz. Buckle the seatbelts. It is going to be a fantastic home stretch of this North American hardcore summer. And again, David Kane's going to join me tomorrow. We'll talk 30,000-foot view, biggest takeaways, men's, women's side from Cincinnati. We'll also, beginning later this week, start to preview all aspects of the U.S. Open on the Great Shot podcast feed. Now, you'll notice no intro music, no editing here today. Super producer Daniel Westhoff on the road with me, trying to get us set, all ready to go for tomorrow. Uh, So, unfortunately... uh, no music, but a shout-out to him, as always, makes everything possible. A shout-out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, that'll do it for this emergency podcast. What a Sunday in Cincinnati it was for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.